history, the first 12 verses again this week, or it's printed there in your bulletin on, I guess, page 9. Let's read this text again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth in the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. And we ask your guidance and your sweet moving in our hearts, O Lord, to change us as we hear this text in Jesus' good name. Amen. One of my favorite things in life is when something comes along that breaks open my reality box. We've all got a reality box, you know. We're busy doing our thing in the world. There's a lot going on in our lives. But you realize sometimes when you stop and think about it that as you're doing all this stuff that you're doing, more than you realize, you and I assume so much about ourselves and about the world. We, assume, we just assume certain things. They're just sort of givens to us. We don't even really think about them. We just assume certain things about who we are. I mean, I, I have a sense of who Ben Miller is, and I just assume that as I go about my day. We assume what we're basically capable of. And we assume things about the world around us, obviously. You know, you assume that certain things are real and certain things are just imaginary. You assume that certain things are possible and certain things are impossible, and that's your reality box. You know, it's kind of what you work in. And then some dimension of possibility gets opened up that we just never, ever thought about. You know, someone comes along like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, and they just kind of like break open the reality box. And you're like, wow, I never even knew that was a thing, and now that's a thing, and we all got to deal with that thing. Or maybe there's an athlete who comes along and just does something, and you're like, I didn't even think people could do that. Or an artist maybe makes a film, and you just, you've never seen anything like this in the theater. Or something will happen that comes along and there's a hint suddenly in your thinking that wasn't there before that there are things kind of moving in the shadows that you never ever knew were real. And you start to wonder maybe those things are actually conscious and maybe they're even seeking us somehow. Well, so often when the Bible talks about something that you and I know about and that we can relate to, the obvious example in this text would be the tongue. I mean, you, you have a tongue, I presume. And I guess most of you use it probably more than you should every day. And, you know, we think about talking. It's like, yeah, we talk. We know what talking is. Speech, you know, yeah, sure, no, no mysteries there. But often when the Bible is talking about things that we know about and we can relate to, you can miss how the Bible is doing something else at the same time. It is also getting down into your assumptions and it's shifting them. Because the Bible assumes things that we do not assume about the world that we're living in. 
The Bible assumes certain realities are moving within the world that we don't necessarily assume. It has deep assumptions about who we are as human beings made in God's image, and we don't always assume the same things as the Bible. And it assumes certain possibilities for our life that we wouldn't necessarily assume are possibilities for us. And that is why I'm coming back to this text this week. I mean, I preached last week about the the tongue and some of the direct stuff that James says about our speech. But what I want to do this week is I want to sort of dig a little deeper in this text. I want to notice with you some things that the text assumes. Uh, First of all, about just the natural world. It assumes certain things about the natural world that I actually think would have been pretty common sense until about 10 minutes ago, but they're now fiercely contested in our particular time. So there are assumptions here about the natural world, but there are also assumptions about human nature. And these assumptions, I think once we unpack them a little bit, you're going to see that they really illuminate how sin works in our lives and how grace works in our lives and some of the possibilities of grace as God is getting into our life and changing us. So let's talk about nature. Let's talk about human nature from the text. Now, about nature, I'm going to be a little bit brief here, but I I just want you to notice a, a couple of things this text assumes about nature. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, Get, get, get your text and make sure you're following here because you want to see what I'm talking about. You'll, you'll notice the first thing the text assumes about nature in verses 11 and 12 is just the nature of nature, <laughs> the nature of nature. And this sounds really obvious, but as it talks about, you know, springs and salt ponds and fig trees and grapevines and olives and so on, the, the, it, this seems very obvious when you say it out loud, but the Bible assumes that the world is full of creatures And these creatures do what they do because it's their nature to do it. The Bible assumes that there's a nature to nature, that things do, they are what they are and they do what they do because it's their nature to be that, it's their nature to do that. Every creature is a certain kind of creature and it lives accordingly. And so you don't get a, as James puts it here, you don't get olive trees from a fig tree or figs from a grapevine because there's a nature to the nature of these things. Now, you know, People have thought about how it could have been otherwise. G.K. Chesterton was kind of famous for this, especially in, um, he's got a wonderful little essay called The Ethics of Elfland, you might read sometime, and and he just kind of philosophically thinks about the fact, it's wonderful, actually, it is, by that I mean it is full of wonder that things are what they are because they could have been otherwise. You know, it it could absolutely be that the sun doesn't rise for a day, (laughs) You know, so it's kind of wonderful that it, it does and that things are what they are. They could have been otherwise. But I think you will agree with me that it's also really wonderful, it is full of wonder, to live in a world where, although things could be other than they are, they are essentially what they are, and so we can expect them to act as essentially what they are. It would be very weird if you weren't ever sure if the, the, you know, the orange groves in Florida are going to bring forth oranges or radishes this year. Can you imagine living in a world where, you know, I guess it'd be kind of full of wonder to live in that world, but it'd also be kind of frustrating. If every time you were lying out on, you know, Robert Moses Beach, there was just a possibility every few years, and all of a sudden, all the sand turns to water, and you're just floating in the Great South Bay, you know, or if every, you know, one morning you pour your coffee, it goes in the mug, the next morning it floats up to the ceiling. I mean, this would be a wonderful world, but in a much, it's also wonderful that we live in a world where you can count on the grapevine to produce grapes. There's a nature to nature, or to say it another way, and this gets a little more controversial, there is a normalcy to nature. Not everything about the world is a human construction. I mean, even if you're so, I'm going to say lame, because I think it is lame, even if you're so lame that you look out at the world and all you see in nature is just raw materials for humans to sort of dominate and make bend to our wills, even if you have that, you know, thin, a view of the world, 
you still have to acknowledge that even in the raw materials that are out there, there's a givenness. There's a giftedness to things. You can't do with wood what you can do with metal, which you, what you can do with stone. And to just go straight against the existentialists, there is an essence that comes with the existence of things. Things don't just exist, and then we, they, we figure out what our essence is. Things come with an essence. And in so many ways, exploring the world means discovering and developing what is essentially there, not deciding what something's going to be, as if we can just construct it according to our will. And there's so much a nature to nature that if the oddities in verses 11 and 12 were actually to occur and you, have, you plant a fig tree and it produces olives, you would actually feel this as a violation of some kind of norm. You'd say to yourself, this isn't normal. In fact, you'd go further and say, there's something wrong with this. It isn't right. These things ought not to be so, you would say. There's a nature to nature. But notice something else the text assumes about nature. The nature of nature in verses 11 and 12, but there's another thing. It also in verse 7 assumes something about the role of humans in nature. Because verse 7 says something that actually strikes you as false at first when you read it. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. Now what's assumed here, this is really important, what's assumed here is that God made human beings, uh, unlike any other creature, God made human beings to tame creation. There are a lot of creatures in the world. God didn't make any of them to tame creation. That's a human thing. And the picture there of human beings taming everything from the sea creatures to the reptiles and beasts and birds, it's, you know, don't get lost in the details. I mean, obviously, we, I don't think anyone's ever tamed a great white shark. I don't think you know, back when there were dinosaurs, they were all tamed. I, it's, you know, it's not so much trying to make the point that every single creature, you know, head for head has been, you know, domesticated by human beings. But the idea, the picture here is of human beings, and it goes back to Genesis, and there's this whole world, and much of it's wild. Not bad, just wild, untamed, and some of it's actually kind of dangerous. And the idea is that human beings go out into the world, into these various, this world of creatures, and they take what is wild and even dangerous, and over time, they turn the world into a habitable and harmonious place. You know, the final vision of life under human rule is that the lion and the lamb can lie down together in peace. It's now habitable. It's a home, and it's harmonious. And the, the, the assumption in Genesis and here is that human beings are going to take some time to discern the nature of things, to have a good, hard look at the nature of things, so as they're forming the world and filling the world, they can kind of work with the grain of what's there. I, you know, Sam and I were talking last week. I think this is what's going on when Adam names the animals. So God brings, it's not so much important what he named them. What's important is that he named them because God brings in the animals, and it's almost like God wants Adam to say, Adam, what's this? And I think Adam had to sit there for a while and take a good, hard look so that when he actually spoke, he could say, I'll tell you what this is. Let me say what this is, because he spent some time looking at it and studying it carefully, and he realized after you know, going through the whole you know, zoo, he realized there was nobody here who was going to be a suitable companion for him. They were many wonderful things. They were not a creature made like him in God's image, but it's, human beings just do this. They just tame things. They can't help doing it. Even, as in the, even in our rebellion against God, human beings cannot help, however distortedly we work with creation to tame it. We do it. This is called culture. It's called taking what is sort of the raw materials of nature and doing things with them, and human beings just do that. Sinners, saints alike, they just do culture. One writer says, human beings share organic life 
with plants and animals. Like we are the same matter and energy as plants and animals, but we have the additional responsibility of covenantal agency, a trust of care and obedience. That's being human. Now there's a whole other conversation I'm not going to have now. I'd love to have it with you guys about how in forming nature, in taming nature, we are formed. We are tamed. How God designed it that in working with the nature of other creatures, encountering, as Matthew Crawford puts it, the world beyond our heads, our human nature ends up being developed and and growing. But we'll have that conversation another time. So those are the two things the text assumes about nature, the nature of nature, and then the role of humans in nature as the tamers. But now, I'd just like to turn a corner and think about what the text says about human nature within this picture, because what you can immediately see and feel in the text is that human beings are the ones who break the pattern. Human beings are the one who rupture the normalcy of what God designed here. And verses 8 through 10 kind of foreground the tongue as the particular example that James is talking about here. You know, we've done all this taming in the world, but the one thing that no one's ever tamed is their own tongue. But I, I want to back up, and I, I want to kind of look at a few pieces of what the text assumes about human nature, and and I want to talk about normal nature, corrupted nature, and restored nature, because there's an assumption about what's normal nature for human beings here, and this is is the assumption in verses 8, 9, and 10, no human being can tame the tongue, how on earth are we blessing and cursing out of the same mouth, the assumption here, and this is probably one of the biggest things I want to kind of drive home today, the assumption in the text about human nature, normal human nature, is that not only is it our nature to rule nature as human beings, we are part of the nature we are to rule. Are you with me? This is a big, big deal. The, oh, we've already talked about the fact that God's role for human beings in nature is to rule, to tame, to you know, take dominion in a loving way over nature. But one of the things that's assumed here about human nature is that you and I are part of the nature we're supposed to, to, to rule. And especially, it is the body that's to be ruled of which the tongue is sort of the representative member. It's the body that is to be lovingly tended like a garden, guided like the horse, tamed like the animals. The dominion that God has given to human beings in the world, and it's a very real dominion, but you know, that dominion gets very, very, very ugly, does it not, if we don't begin that dominion with ourselves. Self-government is normal for human beings in a way that is not for any other, any other creatures because they don't have sort of the rational ability to think about and self-analyze their actions. And of course, what's explicitly stated in verse 8 is that, that is, that's the assumption that we should rule ourselves, we should tame our own selves, but what's explicitly stated, uh, stated this isn't an assumption, it's just right there in verse 8, is that we don't. We do not take the helm of our tongues and steer the ship of our whole bodies, right? We don't put a bit in our mouths and guide the horse of our lives. So from normal human nature, let's think for a moment about corrupted human nature. Basically what James is saying here is with the assumptions of, uh, that are in the background is, brothers and sisters, we're not, we're not normal. <laughs> we're breaking the pattern. And, and you'll notice, this is, it's, not, it's not, obviously, James is not saying, you know, we're not normal in the sense that, well, you know, we just kind of have decided to cut a little bit different path from what's usually expected of humans. You know, it's good now and then to offer some variety beyond what's been done to date with, you know, with nature. You know, we're always glad when a Steve Jobs comes along and, you know, gives us something we've never seen before. That's not the kind of, that's not the kind of break in the normalcy that's being talked about here. 
You know, there are ways to take what is truly nature and form it in all kinds of various and interesting and delightful ways. That is not what's happening here. We are not normal in the sense that when it comes to nature, beloved, there are thi- there is, I'm going to say it this way, you've probably heard this, there is an ought in what is. See, J- James assumes that when it comes to the nature of things, they are, and therefore they ought to be that way. There's an oughtness with the is of things. Some things, he explicitly says there in verse, uh, verse 10, some things ought not to be. Why? Because they're against nature. They're breaking the design of God for this thing. The fact that your tongue and my tongue, through a failure of self-government, through a failure of self-rule, can come in here on Sunday and be singing praises to God, you know, singing joyful praises to our God and Father, and then before you get to your car, you're turning your tongue venomously on other people. James says, that's not just variety. That's not just, you know, you do you and I do me. That's bad. That is morally wrong. That is, in fact, a restless evil. There's this serpentine evil in our very mouths. Now, I would like to notice something. It's very, very significant here. Still talking about corrupted nature. I would like to notice again with you that the abnormality in human beings, the unnaturalness, what the Bible calls sin, lies in our relationship to our bodies. Where what's normal for human beings breaks down is in our relationship to our bodies. What we are to rule in verse 2, what we are to bridle and govern and guide is what? What does it say? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to what? Now, I know it's hot in here, and I can see you guys are getting snoozy. You've got to snap out of it and stay awake here. Rule your body, right? What's it say we are to rule? The whole body. That's the realm of dominion, right? And we don't, and what, I just want to just camp there for a few minutes, and, and this will be kind of the last big thing I want to talk about. I just want to think about the fact that it's your body you don't rule. It's my body I don't rule. That's where sin comes in. And I would like to just think of, for a few minutes very practically now, open up some practical thoughts with James's insight. It's our bodies where the, the dominion breaks down. I want to just think for a minute about what other biblical writers call the flesh, the flesh. Has it ever puzzled you when you read the New Testament why the Bible talks about the flesh so negatively? And a lot of people have done really weird things with that because they think, well, God must not like material things. He must not like physical things. He wants us to be spiritual. He wants us to kind of float above the body and float above the material world and kind of have this, you know, spirituality is kind of out there. That's, that's probably owes more to Greek philosophy really than to any sort of Christian thinking. But why does the Bible speak so negatively about the flesh, which is obviously in some way referring to the body? And I am just massively indebted here to that book I mentioned a few weeks ago by Matthew Lapine called The Logic of the Body. And I'm going to read a sentence from that book and and think together about the flesh related to what James says here. Lapine says, flesh as physicality, in other words, the fact that your body is physical, that's not the origin of sin. You're not a sinner because you have a physical body. Rather, flesh as the Bible uses that term, flesh is the disposition, the Latin word would be habitus, habit, that sin and evil have engraved on our embodied agency since Adam. Now that's the kind of stuff that academics say, and you're like, what? Think about it again. 
Flesh as physicality is not a problem. That's not the origin of sin. What, when the Bible talks about flesh negatively, what it's talking about is this habit, this inclination, this disposition towards sin that sin and evil have like engraved on your embodied agency all the way going back to Adam. Now, the Apostle Paul actually says this in, in, in a little bit more English <laughs> that we can relate to. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says in Romans 7, 5, while we were living in the flesh, okay, while we were living in that realm of human life, that is sinful. Now listen to what he says. Our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Think about that. While we were living in the flesh, this is what life in the flesh is like. Your sinful passions are at work in your, in your members, like carving on your members, engraving things on your members to bear fruit for death. Now let's just think about for a minute what that means and how it relates to what James is saying here. This is what it means to live in the flesh. Not only are our bodies, think about your body. I, mean, I can look out at you and I know you people enough that I, I know something of what's going on you know, in your lives. Not only are our bodies weakened by the effects of sin in the world generally. See, even Jesus experienced this. Some of you are sitting here and you're tired. Why are you tired? That's not normal. That's a weakening effect of the fact that there's sin and evil in the world, and you are living in a world where sin and evil have weakened the body, and so you get tired. You get, you get very, sometimes you get exhausted. Hunger. Disease. Illness. Trauma. The fact that some of you, there are things that trigger your body. It's not even a conscious choice. Certain things that happen, you are immediately somewhere emotionally you were not before because it literally triggers something in your body. Our bodies are weakened by the effects of sin and evil in the world generally. Even Jesus experienced that. That in itself is not sinful. We all experience that, though. You're experiencing it today. But here's where the flesh comes in. In that weakened state, in that weakened state with the vulnerabilities that that creates, sin then starts to get habituated in your body. It becomes a physical habit. Lapine has this wonderful word he uses to describe the body. He says, our bodies have plasticity. Plasticity. That doesn't mean our bodies are made of plastic. Those of you who remember high school physics, plasticity is the quality of things that makes them formable, moldable, like clay. You can form them. You can engrave them. You can stamp them. Wax, hot melted wax is, has plasticity. And what happens, our bodies have plasticity. Our bodies are formable. And what happens over time is I am doing things I ought not to do. And let's be honest, I'm not doing a lot of other things that I ought to be doing. As I do those things I ought not and fail to do what I ought, what happens over time is that those sins get engraved in my physical being until they become a habit, a pattern, where I'm now a habitual oversleeper. I'm a habitual overeater. I am habitually you know, you, you, can, you can imagine. And I, I find myself over time with instinctive dispositions towards certain sins. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to call this a kind of physical slavery. You, know, you, you guys know what this is. You know what I'm talking about. We could give all kinds of examples. I mean, the obvious one in the 21st century is pornography. It is literally rewiring the, the, the neural pathways of the, of the, of the brain, creating unbelievably catastrophic consequences in a whole generation of males. It gets into your body. Distraction. Some of you cannot sit at a desk 
with a computer or a phone near you and do deep reading. Why? Because over time, that sense of I'm missing something, I'm missing something, I'm missing something, what's happening? It's getting in your body. That's not a conscious choice anymore. You literally physically are pulled because your body has plasticity. Anxiety is this way. Okay, you've got things you're worried about. They're probably real, but you know what happens if you let that anxiety run on in your soul? Eventually, your whole body is at a place where when certain things happen, you are physically doing this because your body has plasticity. Unbelief is now physical. Refusal to trust God, you know, just vibrating about things that you have no control over, it's in your flesh. Rage is this way. There are people who they literally, their body is exploding before their mind can catch up because of the plasticity of the body. Despondency, you let your mind run in dark, you know, depressing, faithless, you know, hopeless thoughts. And you know what happens over time? You now are depressed. You are physically depressed. Your body is dragging you down. You can't get out of bed. Why? Because there's, your body has plasticity. Addiction, which we all like to say, oh, you know, addiction, what a big deal. You know what? Addiction is just an extreme version of what every single one of us deals with. Every one of you, I could get into your life a little bit and poke around. I'd find your body is enslaved to certain sins. So is mine. I'm actually kind of stunned by this as I get older, the, way, the weakness of my body when it comes to certain sins. And James depicts the tongue here, quite shockingly almost, as, you know, it's meant to function in our lives as a tool, a bridle, a rudder that we can use to guide our lives. And instead, the tongue, this thing in my mouth, gosh, this week, the Lord, I mean, just exposing this. I've really not enjoyed this series as God makes it applicable in my life. I've got to tell you, this is hurt. I found myself this week living what James talks about. It's almost like this thing in my mouth has a life of its own. You ever, you ever find yourself and you can hear your voice and you're like, what am I even saying? My tongue is out of control. Your body has plasticity. That's called physical slavery. Your tongue is enslaved, as it were, to that habit and it can feel very out of control like a serpent in my own mouth. What God meant to be an instrument of blessing, speaking his truth, his love, his wisdom, his grace, it's just scorching the earth all around you. But now I want to turn one final corner and ask this question. We've talked about normal nature, corrupted nature. Now the question, what if, beloved, and this is Lapine's such interesting insight, what if the plasticity of our bodies, including our tongues, is an opportunity not just for the flesh, not just for habits of sin, but for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and for habits of righteousness? Let's talk as we close about restored nature restored nature. Because Lapine says this, he says, and I think James will be right here, and so would the Apostle Paul and all the rest of the writers. Lapine says the plasticity of the body is also an opportunity. Paul commands believers, and he really, I'm going to maybe in Sunday school talk to you guys about this in a few weeks, but he, he goes to Romans, and he says the Apostle Paul commands believers not to, listen to Paul's language, not to let sin reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey its passions but to present your members as slaves to righteousness. And the presentation of our members, the presentation of our bodies, leads to a new sort of slavery, a new sort of habitus, as Paul says, leading to sanctification, to holiness, to likeness to Jesus. So the New Testament teaches us that 
even as sin will habituate itself in your body through sinful practices over time, until you can get to such a place where you actually feel as if your body is ruling you rather than you ruling your body, even as that can happen, what James called back in a little bit earlier, what James called the implanted word of God. Remember, we've talked about that. God takes the good news of the law and the prophets and how Jesus has fulfilled all of that and how he's making that kingdom come and he puts that in your heart. He implants that in your heart by the Holy Spirit. That implanted word, dear saints, will also habituate itself in your body through righteous practices as much as sin will until you will not just rule your body but through your body you will even have the extraordinary strength to rule and direct your passions. What's that look like? It looks like, okay, let's get to the word. Let's get to the implanted word. And the first thing you need to know about the implanted word, the first message of the implanted word is that there's one person who did this perfectly, and who's that? It's Jesus. That There's your righteousness. You think about Jesus. His body weakened by all the effects of sin. Not one single moment in his entire life did he ever surrender his members to sin. He's your righteousness. Amen? He's your righteousness. And the spirit that quickened the members of Jesus Christ dwells in you. There's your power. Amen? You don't have to do this on your own. Jesus is your righteousness. He did this perfectly. His spirit dwells in you. There's your power. And then what do you do? You start practicing speaking to those people like they are made in the image of God. That's called taking the word, God's description of reality, and putting it to work in your habits, putting it to work with your tongues. I need to look at my kids when they frustrate me, not that that ever happens, and I need to see them as made in the image of God, right? And they need to look at dad when he's being dad, ugh. And see me in the image of God, and we need to speak to each other that way. I mean, these are the, I'm just getting real. This is, this is what it is. It is practicing the word, physically practicing it, beloved. And what we experience over time is that as we're swift to hear the word, as James said earlier, we become slow to speak with our tongues, we get a hold of our bodies, and then it's even possible to become slow to wrath in your passions. I love the way Lapine puts this. He says, mind and body are being renewed by the Spirit. See, some of y'all have been raised in Christian circles where all they talk about is what's going on in your head. You know the problem with that? God's gonna resurrect your body someday, which means he's got purposes for your body, and he wants your body to change now as well as your mind. Mind and body are being renewed by the Holy Spirit, says Lapine. The habit-forming capacity of the body, the habit-forming capacity of the body can also contribute to sanctification. The Spirit of God inaugurates and enables a renewal of our embodied existence such that our renewed mind by the hearing of faith, you know, tuned into the word, then saturates our embodied practice by the Spirit's power. The Spirit of God administers his power both in faith and in practice, unquote. Or as James said in the last chapter, it is not enough to be a hearer of the word only, dear saints. You must be a doer with your body. So I want to close with this question. I really want to sit here and talk for about three hours, but I'm just going to close with this question. What is the area of your life that is least like Jesus? What's the area of your life that has been least transformed by the gospel of the kingdom of God that's come into this world through Jesus Christ? 
What is the area of your life that is least in accord with the Father's implanted word? That's where change is needed. And here's the question. If that's where change is needed, how are you going to get your body involved? Can I say it again? And you guys know this. You can sit here for 35 years listening to sermons. You won't change. How are you going to get your body involved? How are you going to use that God-given plasticity of your body to move over time toward holiness? Where your body now is ready to say no to things. Your body right now is ready to say yes to things. It's sort of formed. It's primed. It's ready. And here's another question. How can you not just get your body involved? Please hear this. How can you get the body involved? I've told you many times. You know when I stopped really, really hardcore exercising? When I dropped out of martial arts. You know why? Because I've discovered something about Ben Miller. I can kick my backside only so far without somebody else kicking it for me. And I've come to believe that is true of almost every single spiritual discipline. We are isolationists. We are individualists. And that's why a lot of us are flat out not growing. You really think you and Jesus have got enough? You know, Jesus is fine. It's you I worry about. You think you and Jesus have got enough to sort of pull? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're on a desert island or he puts you in a gulag, I mean, you know, then serve the Lord alone. But if he puts you in a church, use the church. Use the body. It's so much easier to develop new habits together, beloved. And we really, really, really need to stop talking about that and do it. For Jesus' sake. So that's my word to you. and Man, that's my word to me unto the Lord. Beloved, be a doer. Be a doer. God, help us. Father, we ask you to help us, and we ask you to do. <laughs> we are not just asking you to move in our feelings and our minds. We're asking you to just get right into our bodies and just pull us along. In Jesus' good name, amen.